distance. Hello and welcome to another edition of Cover to Cover Open Book, or as I like to say, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan and I will be here for the next half hour talking about film. Uh, we have two things to focus on today. First, I'm going to give you my top 10 list with a, a few extras on the side. And then one of the films that I thought was exquisite and is on my top 10 I'll replay an interview with her, and that's with Deborah Granick, whose film Leave No Trace I'll get into in just a moment. But let me just first start with my top 10 list. And these are in alphabetical order. I, I couldn't figure out, well, I do know which one's my favorite, but I'll get to that when we get to, I think, number nine, perhaps. Um, the first film I want to mention is Capernaum. It's a film that's just about to open, and it's by Lebanese filmmaker Nadine Labaki. And it's her powerful and painful new film about Zane, who's a 12-year-old who brings his parents to trial for the act of giving birth to him. It borrows its name from an ancient city condemned to hell, um, and the word has become synonymous with chaos, and it talks about modern Beirut and this way that this young boy negotiates his life. It's uh, There's like pain, there's suffering, and yet he's able to love and care about people. And it's a an amazing film by Nadine Labaki. It's her third film and one that is exquisitely um, done. So I hope you would see that. The next film that I really enjoyed is The Favorite. Um, I've been sort of mixed about this filmmaker, Yorgos Lanthimos. He's done about five different films. Um, Dogtooth was one of the first ones that I saw that was very bizarre, a little perverse and intense. He uh, became more well-known with his film Lobster, which was big a couple of years ago. And the favorite is something that he has taken in a new direction. It's a historical period comedy drama film. And uh, it focuses on the behind-the-scenes politics between two cousins, two women cousins, jockeying to be the court favorites during the reign of Queen Anne in the early 18th century. The visuals are astounding. And... How they've captured the mise-en-scene of how the film looks is terrific. It stars Olivia Colman, who is a British actress and who plays Queen Anne in a way that is both feisty and fun. And then she becomes more pained and more cruel and She's dramatically wonderful. And then Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz are both amazing as they try to woo her, destroy each other, and fight for something that becomes unclear whether it's worth it or not. And um, that's what the film is about. Very interesting. The third film is a film that sometimes I have to talk about films that usually aren't available in theaters. Um, this one is only screening... Um, uh, if you stream right now, it's called Happy as Lazaro or Lazaro. It's a 2018 Italian drama and it's directed by Alice Rohrwacher. She's an Italian filmmaker. It's a very political allegory. It takes place on an estate called Inviolata, um, isolated since 1977. It's based on a true story where 54 farmhands worked on a tobacco farm in a sharecropping arrangement. They were cons consistently in debt and underpaid, and they had no idea knowing that actually this was illegal. 
So in this film, the farm is run by the notorious Alfosina de Luna, and Lazaro is somebody who is just good and kind and fair and reasonable. And it's basically about how he winds up interacting with all these people who are very uh, horrible, mean, or uh, people who are have never been treated with the kind of respect that they need. It's a beautiful fable, and it's well told. Uh, it's available on Netflix. Leave No Trace is uh, in the number four position, based on alphabet. It's Drebber Granick's film. Her previous film, Winter's Bone and Down to the Bone, were exquisite films about uh, women dealing with poverty, one in uh, like the Ozarks and one in northern New York. And in this one, she tells the story of a father and his 13-year-old daughter who are living an ideal existence, they think, in a vast urban park in Oregon. The father is a, a vet, and it's the only way he's been able to survive. So what winds up happening is that the two of them get captured and resettled into a home set setting where they have to deal with living in a different kind of world and environment, and it creates new internal pressures that begin to haunt them. The acting is incredible. Thomasine McKenzie, who's a New Zealand actress who acted in the film The Hobbit, is playing with Ben Foster as her father, and the focus is on neorealism, and it's an exquisite film, and I'll have an interview with her in just a bit with Deborah Granick, the director of Leave No Trace. The fifth film, another film by a woman, is by Claire Denis of France. It's entitled Let the Sunshine In, and it tells a very interesting story about Juliette Binoche and how she, as a middle-aged woman, is trying to find herself as an artist as she gets involved with a lot of skimmy, scammy, awful men and what happens. It's a humorous film. It's really intriguing in terms of how the story plays out and how Juliette Binoche over time really discovers herself and allows something really interesting to happen. The next film that I would recommend is a film that was only here for a brief time. It played at the Roxy. It's called Madeline's Madeline. And it's a 2018 drama film written and directed by Josephine Decker. And it stars Miranda July and Helena Howard as Madeline. And Howard is an amazing teenage actress. She plays Madeline, who's encouraged by her theater director. This is sort of an improv theater. To blur the lines between the character she's playing and her actual identity. And the film explores mental illness, fraught relationships between mothers and daughters, and how it's possible that theater improvisation can be both creative and exploitative. It's a, an experimental film. It's dramatic and intense and impassioned, and one that I think is terrific. The next film, Shirkers, is in the theaters a little bit, but also is playing uh, streaming right now on Netflix. And it's, it is a quirky, wild film. In 1992, teenager Sandy Tan shot Singapore's first road movie with her um, 
friends and as well as his mentor, Georges, who uh, was somebody who came from the U.S. to teach film. And he winds up absconding with all of their footage. And the 16-millimeter film is recovered 20 years later. And now Tan, who's a novelist living in Los Angeles, goes on a personal odyssey in search of him, his history, and her past. And it's uh, you could see how this film, that the first version that came, would have come out in 1992, would have just like knocked everybody's socks off. So here it is, seeing something over time and seeing what happened. Really a fun romp, well worth seeing. The next film on my list, as I go through alphabetically, is Shoplifters. It's the latest film by Hirokazu Koreeda. He's a, this is his drama film that he wrote, directed, and edited, all three. And it's about a destitute family that takes in a girl who's been forsaken. And this is a family that has no resources, but they really care about each other. And you find out the impact that one moment has on all of their lives. He's been making a lot of these films that um, he started in a much different direction. And his most recent films have really been exploring this idea of love and lost love and members of a family that connect are missing and he really takes this one to a new level it's just opened shoplifters by Corey ada number eight is also only available for streaming it's called summer 1993 it's a 2017 catalan language spanish drama but only came to the states this year written and directed by carla simone and it's a film about a young girl who is six, who has lost both of her parents to the AIDS epidemic, and how she moves to the country from living in Barcelona, and how she sort of reclaims her life and her history, and connects with people and wants to go on living again. A very sensitive, amazing acting story from uh, this first-time film director, which I believe is an autobiographical story, summer 1993. Uh, then we go to number nine, which I think is um, perhaps the strongest film I've seen this year. It's a film called Roma by Alfonso Cuaron. It's available both in streaming, uh, which I would not recommend, and in the theater. It is an exquisite black and white drama, and he himself co-produced, co-edited, and directed the film. And it stars Yalitza Aparicio as Cleo. And she is somebody who's indigenous, who works as a housing, like she does everything in the house. She's the maid. She takes care of the children. She takes care of the animals. And it explores his life growing up in Mexico through the eyes of the person he loved the most, the person who took care of him, who was this housekeeper. Uh, so it's about memories, and it's also really interesting, a linking of social, cultural, and political elements to explore um, a very important time in the early 70s uh, in Mexico City. And I think if you watch it streaming, you would find it maybe slow, banal, and nothing happening. But if you see it in the theater, you will see the drama unfolding in an amazing way. The last film on my list is Zama. It's a 2017 film that also got released this year, directed by Lucrecia Martel from Argentina, and it's based on the 1956 novel of the same name, in which Zama is a low-level bureaucrat 
who is trying to advance in this Spanish colonial world of Argentina, but he can't because he was born in the occupied lands. So it's about racism, colonialism. It's、uh, very beautifully shot and put together. So of those top ten, it's very interesting. Seven of the ten are by women, which I think is remarkable. I just want to briefly mention four other films that I think.、Uh, Were astounding and quite interesting. Black Klansman, which I think was Spike Lee's strongest film in many years. Black Panther, which is,、uh, if you're interested in the superhero genre, amazing.、Uh, RBG, if you're interested in the superhero drama of somebody who's in the Supreme Court, <laughs> astounding. Her, her life is astounding. And then Three Identical Strangers, which is,、uh, it just talks about how.、Uh, Trying to understand something through science winds up perverting the lives of people who don't deserve to be perverted. Really interesting film. So、uh, now I want to go to one of the interviews that I played earlier this year. Deborah Granick, whose film Leave No Trace,、uh, I thought was an amazing film. And、uh, She's somebody who, since she uses neo realism, I'm so interested in how she makes the film and how she was able to capture the life between a father and a daughter in a way that is so important, especially since there is so little dialogue between the two of them. So, this is an interview that I recorded earlier this year, Deborah Granick, about Leave No Trace. That you did a remarkable job at capturing the interior of the two characters, of the father and the daughter, which is so difficult in film in general, but especially in this situation when there's so little dialogue. And I was wondering how you thought about it. Well, I always, from reading the book and, and thinking about this adaptation, I realized a,、uh, a priority or a very special attention would we have to be paid to process what these two characters do, and meaning on screen tasks. Skills that they manifest, the actual tactile nature of、um, being in that forest, knowing how to navigate within it, how to make a functional camp work so that it can sustain their day to day. And to do this, we needed to be trained. It's not, it's not a skill set that I have, and we enlisted the help of a primitive skills trainer. And then when Tom and Ben, the actors, Playing those leads, you know, kind of, I would say, started to get proficient at these skills. We knew that they would, I watched them in rehearsal and I knew it would be very photogenic, but I also started to see that it took the place of some dialogue, that it would be a glance. If, if she was creating her feather stick, her tinder with, with her knife, and her father looked over and noticed that, you know, she was doing an excellent job, it was a look. It was a look, and maybe he would comment, maybe he would compliment, but It started to show me that they were not, they were not very verbose. You know, they weren't, they weren't,、um, they weren't over explaining things. They were doing things, watching, observing. And that started to be the front and center form of communication. And, and I was going to say that, you know, verbal exposition and, and explanation and chatter or any extra language took a big backseat. So this is,、uh, you weren't planning on that. You actually had written dialogue for them, but then it became clear that it wasn't necessary in the same way? It was always terse. I mean, there, there was dialogue, and, and then we stripped it down in the rehearsal per- period. And then I would say sometimes day of, and, and, and some dialogue we would film just in, in any traditional narrative protocol of filming. You know, we would film it, and then some of that gets, you, you delete some in, in the editing process. So, yes, overall, from 
the first drafts of this script to what's on screen, there was a progression of deleting dialogue as we went. Well, what I think is remarkable about this film is that it feels so intimate and that even though you know, a film in a way is so flat, you were able to create something that felt more and more rich. So we wind up empathizing with the characters as we're going along and really understanding them in a very intimate, close-up way. So do you think that it was the change in the dialogue or do you think that there was something about sort of how you positioned yourself through the course of directing this film that kept on being able to be modified based on what you were seeing? I've been thinking about this a lot because I've had to really dwell on some of these questions in a way that aren't always so in the front of one's conscience, consciousness when you're filming. Um, and I, I was thinking recently that in, this, in the settings that were vast, meaning in the forest settings, when we would, in order to be with them, to come close to them, the DP was on, you know, he was on his knees, he was using knee pads, and he would come very close to their fire pit or to where she was cooking, where or to, to, to their tent. And that played out one another time in a very palpable way when they had gotten lost deeper in the film on a very in a, in a increasingly inclement and uh, kind of physically threatening way as, 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 the, as that day progresses. And, and we had to come very close when they got very cold and when they had to lean in or... Uh, minister some assistance to each other we had to come very close to them even though they're in a very large space i mean infinite almost you know what would feel almost infinite in terms of what the eye can see you know they were they were surrounded in all directions by a very not just not not just a sparse forest but a very old growth kind of forest with with just very textured density so i i i'm i'm now coming to this belief that uh the bigger the environment, in some ways, the intimacy is, is, is achieved by the closer you, you get to your characters. You know, without, and I don't necessarily mean by uh, lens closeness. I don't mean like going for an ECU, you know, extreme close-up on the face by virtue of the lens. But I, I actually think the proximity of the camera to the, to this, to the people that you're trying to get close to emotionally. Um, yeah, so that, that's something that's struck me in these conversations. It's, it's also interesting that somehow when you're speaking about this level of closeness, that initially in the film, that the father and daughter don't need to communicate verbally because it seems like they're almost of one mind in uh, my way of thinking. And then slowly, Tom, the girl, becomes sort of more of her she starts developing her own way of thinking that both matches and doesn't match her father in some kind of way so that there's a shift uh, a shift away from intimacy and often in films it's the reverse where people slowly come together and here it is the most important part is the way that they're sort of separating at the same mm-hmm. time that they're together I, I mean, that's true and I, I something I treasured about this character the teen girl character was she inherently uh, provides a path for experiencing her in a very cinematic way, meaning she's an observant person. And, uh, you know, film loves nothing more than an observant person because it is a visual medium. So what started to be a really rich process of, of, you know, kind of collaborating on this film with this character was that it allowed us to see what she sees. And because she's 
frequently seeing things in a very fresh way, I was enjoying that. She's not a jaded person as a character, and therefore things have a fresh, when she peers into something, wants to observe other teens. We know she's coming to it with curiosity, which also allows us to come with it, to you know, arrive with some curiosity. Oh, why do other teens... Uh, Take, seem to become immersed and, and get fulfillment from taking care of barnyard animals. You know, what for her the question is: Hmm, 4-H. What is it? Why do why do other teens in America like it? And might I like it? So, uh, as a person trying to figure out what Tom does and what she sees and what it means to her, she gives a lot. You know, she gave me a lot. Of, she gave us, you know, me and the filmmaking team a lot of options in some ways. Yes, we're talking with Deborah Granick. Her film is Leave No Trace. You know, the, the thing that's also really interesting about your film is the mise-en-scene or the way that, in your case, like the shooting, which was exquisitely beautiful, um, the editing, the music, the acting, they all come together to carefully create the story. And I'm wondering how you think about that because all of the elements just seemed so perfectly fit for this story. Oh, I'm, I'm, it feels so good to hear that because I'm, I'm actually thinking of all the colleagues you just named. You know, all the other people who contributed on on in each of those areas. And I was I I'm picking up especially on the idea of uh, score or music that um, you know was invoked to support the story. And in this case, the score is done by Dick and Hinchcliffe, who's out of the UK, and he someone who I really appreciate for the fact that he can be uh, such a minimalist and I've, I've liked that in his work for other films and I was I wanted something where the score was not editorializing where it's not cueing us where we're supposed to feel specific things you know there's sometimes it does aid and abet maybe a sensation of adrenaline or uh, you know some some cues are used that might be very commonly associated with a chase. There, you know, there's a brief chase scene in this film, but outside of that, uh, the sound, the soundscape was that the score was really supposed to yield to the soundscape. So the sound designer was really our our primary bed of what people are hearing in this film, meaning the na- the natural sounds and uh, and I would say um, the na- the natural sounds. And also the perspective, that as they come closer and closer to town, the built world becomes loud as they recede. So making that um, palpable for anybody who's experiencing the film. Right. You know, it's it's so brave when I think about it, when I think about films like Captain Fantastic, for example, where there's sort of this Hollywood twist on somebody living their own kind of world uh, in the country without any kind of restraints. And you actually made it both real, authentic, and uh, it's really about, uh, I think it creates an environment where one starts having sympathy for the veterans and for people who are homeless in a way that's completely different. So uh, I, I think that was really remarkable that you were able to stick to your vision. I had a lot of rich influences. You know, this this project brought me to... I, I, want, I want to say almost a national treasure or a collection of uh, documentary films about um, veterans who, ha- in previous times, have sought seclusion and living in many ways similarly undetected, um, have lived on wild lands, and, they, and these there was a poetry to this quest for almost a kind of um, self rebalancing or a, a self medicating to 
have very strong feelings that were unnamed in, in the previous in the previous cycle of this, which would be the Vietnam era. And there wasn't there wasn't the name for PTS and uh, and PTSD, uh, but there was there were the symptoms and there were the issues and there were and there was the extremely active life of the mind and the conscience that they were grappling with, and this these we have a short tolerance for what we can what we consider the window of acceptable discourse about the aftermath of war, two to five years after the combat. And, and understanding that their whole warrior class has returned, that has experienced this, we're done with it as a public. You know, we, we oh, you know, understand what we, 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 you know, nationally we say we understand, but, you know, it's kind of, you should be done with it now. You know, mm. we don't want any more headlines about this. We don't really want to hear too much more. And. We also might say simultaneously, we, 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 hope, we hope it's resolved. We hope you don't, you're not having these feelings anymore. But that's not how it, it plays. And so this discussion and was also very accurately and, and beautifully articulated by the author David J. Morris in his book, The Evil Hours. And together, this, his, his memoir and these documentary films pushed me to acknowledge that none of this was new to the sand wars but it's here again and and i and i really i really the more i worked and read and thought about the character of will tom's father uh the more i saw there was precedent for him in our real in our in in our in our literally our national heritage that in the olympic peninsula not far from where we were filming um men had vietnam era soldiers had sought refuge and had lived in some similar ways. That's so interesting. Now, you made also a documentary about uh, somebody who was a vet. Do you think that that there was something about uh, the experience of shooting a documentary impacted the way that you saw this as well? Or do you think that, um, you know, is this a political calling or does it feel more like you're just really seeing the implication of uh, war over the time? I think both, but I, I, I want to say that the documentary absolutely informs. You know, I was having a very long conversation over a period of three years with a, a vet who described in depth his journey through VA, you know, help from the VA, what worked, what didn't work, um, sort of the backfiring of the idea that we could medicate some of PTSD away, we could medicate conscience, you know, and uh, he was such a... Again, he, in, with exacting detail, talked about different excursions, different people who treated him, different people he spoke to. Um, and then even, even so, in some ways, so optimistically, was able to also recount when, when, when some therapy actually really worked. And, you know, so all of this was very much informing me to the point which, you know, their vets telling me which drugs they tried, you know, which, which of the medications they tried and, and, there was poetry even in that, you know, to hear someone say, you know, when's the last time that drug stopped a nightmare? You know, just, I loved, it was almost, a, there was almost a lot, there was, there was philosophy in it as well about what you can and cannot mechanistically change about how the brain works. And going, go, you know, and I, I would say every step of the way, even where the vet that I made the documentary with, uh, Ron Hall, I was so inspired by where he lived, and that was chronicled a lot in, in, in the portrait of him. Um, it was such a precursor to the idea of tiny houses. You know, it's, it's an RV community, and, and there was a very distinct anthropology of how people were making their lives work in very small dwellings. Very scrappy survivors, very little cushion. 
<laughs> and that's an interview with Deborah Granick from her film Leave No Trace, uh, a wonderful film that's on the list. So I'm just going to very quickly go through the list one more time. I realize I had 11, not 10. Uh, uh, but they are Capernaum, Nadine Nabaki, The Favorite, Yorgos Lanthimos, Happy as Lazaro, Alice Rohrwacher, uh, Leave No Trace, Dreba Granick, Let the Sunshine In, Claire Denis, Madeline's Madeline, Josephine Decker, Shoplifters, Corrieda, uh, Summer 1993, Carla Simone, uh, Shirkers, Sandy Tan, Roma, Alfonso Cuaron, and Zama, the film by Lucrezia Martel with special nods to Black Klansmen, Black Panther, RBG, and Three Identical Strangers. My name is Raina Cowan, and you've been listening to another edition of Frame to Frame. I'll be back next month to talk more about film. Um, have a good new year, and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for listening. Join KPFA for our next movie matinee as we screen the critically acclaimed Oscar-winning film, Thelma and Louise. This movie classic starring Susan Sarandon, Gina Davis, Brad Pitt, and Harvey Keitel offers thought-provoking commentary on freedom, assault, patriarchy, and friendship. The plot centers around two best friends who embark on a road trip that goes terribly awry, forcing them to make life-altering as well as life-affirming decisions. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. Join us on Saturday, December 29th at 3 p.m. at the New Parkway Theater in Oakland as we travel along with these two unlikely heroines on their road trip to empowerment, liberation, and the ultimate sacrifice. For ticket information, visit kpfa.org or thenewparkway.com. This is a KPFA benefit. KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, as well as online at kpfa.org. One, two, three.